Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on the Nerdcast, we are going to dig into an action-packed week. For one thing, the Democratic presidential field did something it hasn't done in a while. It grew. The newest Democrat who wants to take on President Trump next fall, former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick, and another potential candidate is former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg. We've had some folks dropping out, but this week we had a couple new candidates jump in. It's kind of this like one in, one out policy apparently Democrats have. No one in the modern era has ever entered the race for president this late in the game and prevailed. He apparently thinks there's still room for one more. When you talk to voters on the ground, they say that they're overwhelmed by the number of candidates, that there are too many. And yeah, this might seem a little out of left field, if you'll pardon the pun. The, The race has been going on for 10, 11 months at this point. What are Patrick and Bloomberg doing jumping in now? Uh, what they're doing is making a statement about the way they and some other folks, to be fair, see the Democratic presidential field concerns about whether there's a candidate who can emerge from the party, stitch the party back together and then win in 2020. Uh, concerns that a lot of uh, Democratic primary voters and a fair number of elites, for that matter, don't share. But we're going to get into all that and some of the promises and the many obstacles facing these new campaigns as they uh, jump into the crowded waters of this race. But first, we're going to talk about impeachment. We had the first public impeachment hearing this week on Capitol Hill with the House Intelligence Committee hearing testimony from two diplomats about just what was going on as they saw it in this shadow diplomacy that uh, President Donald Trump was running in Ukraine and his alleged efforts to use that to affect the 2020 election. If we find that the president of the United States abused his power and invited foreign interference in our elections, or if he sought to condition, coerce, extort, or bribe an ally, if this is not impeachable conduct, what is? I'm gobsmacked. What we will witness today is a televised theatrical performance staged by the Democrats. Quick note before we jump into that, we are taping this on Thursday. So if anything notable or breaking or weird happens after that, we are going to do our usual thing and cover it next week. All right, now... Back to that first segment, we're going to talk all about impeachment. And here to break it down for us, we have two of Politico's impeachment experts. First, Nahal Tusi, Politico's foreign affairs correspondent. Hi, Nahal. Hey there. Thanks for joining us again. And Politico's Congress editor, Ben Weil. Hi, Ben. Hi, how are you doing? Good, good, good. So start us off here. Uh, Yesterday, Wednesday, we kicked off the public stage of the impeachment proceedings on, on President Donald Trump's conduct regarding Ukraine. What's the plan here? These witnesses have already been deposed behind closed doors. Why is the House Intelligence Committee now re-interviewing people they've already talked to in this public setting? So the private depositions were intended really as a fact-finding exercise for Democrats. They were gathering evidence, trying to figure out what really went down. Um, And the public phase is about making their case to the American people that Donald Trump needs to be impeached. So it makes sense for the Democrats to learn about what these witnesses might say, um, and then ask the questions, maybe the exact same ones they asked behind closed doors, but now they know what the answers are going to be. And so they have a much better way of telling a story. You know, if they're trying to 
uh, to create a narrative for why, for the president's actions, why they're an abuse of power and why he needs to go. And of course, well, people have to be listening to the story in order for, for you to be able to tell it properly. But that's that's kind of another, we could do a whole other segment about media fragmentation in the 21st century. But uh, no, uh, things started with these two witnesses, George Kent, a deputy assistant secretary of state who's in charge of Ukraine policy uh, at the State Department, and, and William Taylor, who's the acting ambassador to Ukraine. Why them first? Well, these are two men who have uh, long-standing careers in government service. They are nonpartisan. Uh, they, I mean, Bill Taylor's like been in government service for like fifty years. Uh, they are. They have a lot of credibility, and so it's hard to tear them down. And then on top of that, uh, in particular, Bill Taylor, uh, you know, these two guys had some of the most damning evidence. And so they were, on the one hand, very, very strong candidates just simply on the facts that they could present. Uh, and on the other hand, it's hard to uh, for a Republican uh, or a Democrat or whatever to go after them on any sort of partisan basis. And what was the crux of what they talked about yesterday? Again, m- most, most of which was stuff that they had already we, – we've already read in the transcripts of the closed hearings that had been released and had been reported kind of the, later that day when they did do these closed hearings. So most of it, like you said, had been reported. The general gist was there was the official foreign policy channel that was dealing with Ukraine, and then there was the irregular one uh, that involved the president's personal attorney and a couple of other uh, ambassadors, uh, and that they were doing things that appeared to benefit the president politically. And that's kind of the key question. Now, there was one brand new thing uh, that came up. Uh, Bill Taylor uh, said that a staffer of his just a few days ago had told him that he had overheard a conversation between uh, Ambassador Gordon Sondland, the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, and President Trump, uh, in which the president via the phone uh, talked about or asked about the status of these investigations that he wanted Ukraine to do. A member of my staff could hear President Trump on the phone asking Ambassador Sondland about the investigations. Ambassador Sondland told President Trump the Ukrainians were ready to move forward. Following the call with President Trump, the member of my staff asked Ambassador Sondland what President Trump thought about Ukraine. Ambassador Sondland responded that President Trump cares more about the investigations of Biden, which Giuliani was pressing for. And that was a bit of a bombshell. This was right after Trump and the Ukrainian president had spoken. Right. It was the next day. And, and then apparently Sondland told this staffer, the, you know, when the staffer asked him, what does President Trump think of Ukraine? Sondland said, well, he just cares a lot more about Biden and these investigations. And so that staffer has been uh, uh, asked to come and testify as well. Interesting. So things kind of broadening a little bit as a result of some of these interviews, uh, which we've seen in past in impeachment hearings. too. You get you get new evidence and then it kind of broadens the. Um, the the scope of the the witnesses uh, who end up being talked to, um, which is why it's a little bit funny that that we keep kind of going back to the whistleblower and who the whistleblower is when like all all the information has led to other people who are testifying to more or less the same thing, uh, but but with first or secondhand knowledge instead of whatever was involved in the whistleblower report. I mean, I think that's you know we're talking about the strategies that Democrats and Republicans have, and Republicans are eager to go after the whistleblower still because it's kind of a shadowy figure. He's an anonymous person. Uh, this person wasn't on the call. They haven't had firsthand dealings. But now, as Nahal points out, you know some of the people who are directly involved in Ukraine policymaking um, 
are are testifying. And next week, when when Gordon Sondland comes, uh, someone who had direct interactions with President Trump all the time. That's going to be the big one. Well, I can't wait till Gordon. Yeah. Sondland. Well, t- tell us a little bit more about that. Why is that? Because we've seen that this is someone who's under enormous pressure at this point, partly be- on the basis of the testimony that he already delivered to the House under oath. I should add, which which he then went back and modified. Uh, mm-hmm. Under under some pressure after the reports of what other people had testified came out, his memory was refreshed. Yes, yes, yes. Um, in a revision of his testimony, he basically reversed himself on the question of quid pro quo and and Trump and Ukraine. He said, you know, it's it seemed likely that uh, Ukraine was not going to get the military aid it needed. It was not going to get the sit down between the Ukrainian president and uh, Trump unless. Uh, Trump got these investigations or just just announced the investigations. You know, one of the interesting things is it didn't really matter to Trump probably, you know, whether the investigations took place or not, but he needed the announcement. There was this t- discussion public of public perception that the Biden family was under investigation for exactly, wrongdoing. Exactly. And, you know, we saw how that worked with Hillary Clinton. She was under FBI investigation and that tarnished her candidacy in 2016. And so it would not, you know, what Democrats are trying to make the case is that uh, President Trump was looking to do the same thing with Biden in 2020. And one thing about Gordon Sondland, why does he have this access to the president that people like Bill Taylor and George Kent, who are career diplomats, don't? Well, because he uh, did not come from the Foreign Service. He was a an owner of hotels, uh, and he gave a million dollars to Trump's inauguration, and therefore he was awarded this ambassadorship to the European Union. He is a political appointee, and sometimes these are really great positions to have because you get the kind of access that the career diplomats don't. And so some countries like that. They like having a political appointee as an ambassador. Uh, But in this particular case, you know, this could come back to haunt him very much because he had this connection with the president that now everybody wants to know about. And I bet he wants his million dollars back. That's such an interesting point. So I I also want to talk about what did we learn or what struck you about the way the Republican members of Congress and and their counsel approached the hearings on Wednesday, and and we've got another one coming up Friday. We've got more public hearings next week. But a, you know, a couple of things jumped out at me. It was just first how quickly Republican members kind of jumped in to just interrupt. Hearing. Mr. Chairman, it is the intention of the committee to proceed without disruption. Chairman, before what may I make a parliamentary in- inquiry? Chairman, will state the inquiry. Um, Mr. Chairman, Adam Schiff, who's the, the committee chairman, Democrat, just right like right from the get go during his opening statement, that kind of signaled. The, the beginning of this adversarial process. But then also the, the prominence of Jim Jordan, this hardline uh, Republican congressman from Ohio, big Trump defender who was placed on the committee just recently like for, for this very purpose of, of being involved in these hearings. Right. So the, their approach seems to be to basically um, say that what is in the transcript is not really there, uh, to bring up whenever possible, the issue of Hunter Biden, uh, Joe Biden, and alleged corruption, uh, alleged uh, Ukrainian interference in the 2016 election, which many folks will tell you is a total conspiracy theory at the end of the day. Um, They want to very much muddy the water, but they also, you know, point out certain things like, look, you know, we 
constantly condition foreign aid on a variety of things. And maybe this call that the president had, it was just Trump being Trump. Uh, so they're trying to me, it seems like they're throwing, like throwing everything at the wall and trying whatever they can. Um, and I will I will say, I, I think it's going to be fascinating to watch the Saturday Night Live rendition of all of this because uh, Jim Jordan in particular was absolutely amazing to watch because he was talking so fast. Let me read it one more time. Ambassador Taylor recalls that Mr. Morrison told Ambassador Taylor that I told Mr. Morrison that I conveyed this message to Mr. He, he was just saying everything so quickly and, you know, Bill Taylor and others were just sitting there like clearly just having a hard time following him. Bill Taylor got this like Cheshire cat grin on his face. Um, and it's just going to be amazing. I, I don't, but I have to tell you, I don't know what Jim Jordan's strategy ultimately, whether that's going to work, because just saying things really, really fast, like even ordinary folks aren't necessarily going to understand what he's trying to say. Ben, what struck you uh, as, as you were watching and, and editing the, the coverage of, of this big hearing on Wednesday? You know, I think the, the, the big question going into this hearing was how alike or different it will, will it be from the Mueller hearing? You know, that was supposed to be a big moment, um, a potential bombshell um, that would lead to impeachment, and it didn't. And it was kind of uh, a flub for for Mueller and the Democrats. Um, and so the House Democrats were very anxious going into the hearing. Uh, they, they wanted something stronger, and they think they got it. You know, they feel pretty good about this news coming out, this, you know, damning evidence um, that ties Trump closer into the Ukraine saga. Um, the witnesses were pretty strong. Um, Schiff did a good job, they think. So um, there was a lot of anticipation for this. Um, and, you know, I think I think most Democrats feel like it went pretty well for them. And you can I, you can tell when everyone's taking it seriously, when they deviate from the usual uh, every every member of this committee gets five minutes to do their own weird thing. And instead, I mean, we saw a lot of both the, the chairman and the ranking member and also their counsels uh, who, who directed a lot of the questioning. Yeah, I think that was a really smart move by the House Democrats. Normally in these live hearings, you don't have the staff counsel um, asking questions directly, but they uh, when they approved the rules package for for the, these hearings and the impeachment inquiry, they said, we will let the staff um, ask some of these questions. And it just professionalized it, you know, and it's someone who could continue going back and forth with a witness for for an extended period of time. Whereas with normal hearings, you have a congressman and they have five minutes. They're making a speech for half of that. It's a lot of bluster. Um, you don't really learn anything. And this was like an enlightening moment, I think. And uh, it was a star turn moment for Daniel Goldman, mm -hmm. the uh, Democrat staff attorney, who on Twitter, a number of people were saying is really hot. <laughs> News you can use, folks. Mm -hmm. uh, all right. There's going to be a lot more of these. Uh, thank you both so much for, even though there isn't one today, you guys are both running around dealing with the aftermath of the, the last one and what's coming up with the next one. So I, I really appreciate you both coming in to, to talk through it. Ben, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Yeah. Nahal, thank you as well. Thank you. All right, that does it for us on impeachment today. Now we're going to talk about this unusual moment we're at in the Democratic primary. If you look at polls of Iowa, if you look at polls of New Hampshire, 70 plus percent of Democratic primary voters or caucus goers have kind of coalesced around this group of four frontrunners. You've got Elizabeth Warren, you've got Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, and Pete Buttigieg. And yet we've got not one but two Democrats jumping into the presidential field because they think they see an opening to to crack open that that field. And that's what we're going to talk about right now. Uh, we had Michael Bloomberg jumping into the water last week. And on Thursday, actually just this morning, Deval Patrick, the former governor of Massachusetts, announcing that he was running for president as well. 
And with us to talk about it, we have Politico's Massachusetts Playbook author, Stephanie Murray, on the phone. Hi, Stephanie. Hey, thanks for having me. Stephanie, where, where, are, you, where are you taping from right now? I am in Boston, Massachusetts, um, where everybody is shocked and thrown into chaos at the news that Deval Patrick is running for president. Yeah. And so, I mean, the, this this sense of shock and chaos kind of started last week when the first stories broke that Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York City, was making preparations to get on the ballot in some states and that, you know, he saw an opening that he felt was not being filled in the Democratic primary. And so we're all kind of still absorbing that when all of a sudden we get the news that Deval Patrick, the former governor of Massachusetts, he's thinking the same thing. And then, you know, he rolls up to New Hampshire today to file. But can, can you walk us through what what happened here with Patrick? Yeah. So, I mean, looking and seeing that there's an opening for you in a field of like 20 or so candidates sounds kind of crazy, but it makes a little bit of sense. But I'll get to that later. So uh, around Monday, news started to break that Patrick had been calling people and telling them that he was considering running for president. Um, and it turns out he had kind of called a meeting of his closest advisors um, including former Senator Mo Cowan, who he had appointed to the Senate when he was governor um, on Sunday night. And they started to make the plans. And then they were reaching out all week. He decided to pull the trigger on Wednesday. And by Thursday morning, he was on network TV for an interview and all the way up to New Hampshire. It happened super, super fast. And this is a a guy in Patrick, two-term governor uh, of of Massachusetts, who was generating some excitement about a potential presidential campaign in 2018 and then pulled the plug. He said he wasn't interested. He said it was, uh, among other things, he said... It would have a. He said it would have a negative effect on on his family and people around him he cared about. And yet here we are. What what changed? That's the question, and it's not really clear to me what did. I mean, he cited the cruelty of the le- the elections process and what it would have on his family. And I mean, looking at the last ten months or so, I don't think that the elections process has gotten any kinder <laughs> through the twenty twenty process. But I think that he sees a lane for himself in a few ways. Um, He's just this relentlessly positive, upbeat person. He comes from this really uh, inspirational rags to riches story. He was, he grew up really poor on the South side of Chicago. Uh, He got a scholarship to a Massachusetts prep school. He moved here. It changed his entire life. He went to Harvard. He ended up uh, being the second black governor ever elected in America. I mean, he's got this story He's a little bit more moderate than maybe Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders on things like healthcare and the wealth tax. And I think he sees himself as more exciting than Joe Biden, who he said today was just kind of, well, he said somebody was running on nostalgia when he talked about his plans to run today. Uh, But we seem to be migrating to, uh, on the one camp, sort of nostalgia. Let's just get rid, if you will, of the incumbent president. We can go back to doing what we used to do. And... uh, I think most people understood that he without naming names. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the other interesting thing here is that a number of the people running for president might get pulled off the trail right before Iowa and New Hampshire for the impeachment trial in the Senate. And if that happens, then they're going to have to rely on surrogates. They're not going to be on the ground. And once you get to this point, really every single day, every minute, every hour matters to try to get votes in those two those two contests. So maybe with people kind of pulled away, there could be an even bigger lane for him to do well in New Hampshire. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, I, I guess he probably has some, although maybe not a ton of pre-existing name recognition in New Hampshire from having been 
governor of Massachusetts. And then the the idea is that he 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 could try and make a stand there. That Iowa is probably not going to be a a point of focus for him. Right. I think I think the play is do well in New Hampshire and then carry that momentum to South Carolina and really connect with black voters there and just start to get a lot of momentum. Uh, People close to him have acknowledged to me that this campaign could last a month or it could last all the way to next summer if there's a brokered convention. Uh, It's things are very unsettled and unclear right now to them. Yeah, absolutely. And meanwhile, so we see Bloomberg um, not actually totally getting in. He's like filing papers to get on the ballots in a few places. And uh, the, the reporting out of that campaign is saying basically that he's going to skip all the early states. Very, very different idea of a strategy. He's going to skip all the early states. He's going to potentially, if he decides it's necessary and there's still an opening for him, spend an enormous amount of money advertising in the Super Tuesday states and the, the stuff that comes right after those those four early ones in February and try and get in that way. And so totally, totally different strategy than Patrick. But, but it seems to be coming from a, a similar place of this... Um, basically moderate unease with the uh, how well Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have been doing in the primary and uh, a sense that Joe Biden has not done as well as as maybe they expected. Exactly. That's a great point. And I mean, you look at the strategy of skipping the early states and it's just risky and it's raised a lot of eyebrows. I mean, I don't know. Can you think of anybody who's been able to pull this off just kind of starting on Super Tuesday? No, I mean, not not in the modern primary and caucus context. Exactly. But with all of the money behind him and the money that he has to self-fund, I mean, it doesn't sound so crazy to me. And that's the problem that Deval Patrick is going to face is that he can't self-fund uh, in that way that Bloomberg can. And he's going to have to put together a really... Uh, a really great fundraising operation in a really short amount of time if he's going to be a viable candidate. And, and or, you know, th- this is someone who's proven capable of spinning a, a moment out of a speech and a public appearance and, and, and his own personal charisma in the past. And I think they might be banking on his his ability to um, to do that. At, at this point, it's just interesting. I like thinking through this, and the last thing a candidate wants to be doing as they are trying to introduce themselves is be talking about the other candidates. And yet, the 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 mere fact of jumping into the presidential race at this moment, at this very late moment in time, uh, is a statement about about the rest of the field. I mean, Patrick, he's got you know, his home state senator, Elizabeth Warren, near the, near the top of the polls in, in a bunch of these early states, right, for, for the primary. For Massachusetts, don't forget. <laughs> oh, yeah, excellent point, excellent point. But the thing is, Patrick has actually been commenting on this Democratic primary field publicly for months. He just signed on to CBS News in September as a contributor. And so they would have him on after the different debates and he would he would criticize that old critique everyone and talk about what they did well and what they didn't do well. Uh, he called Elizabeth Warren's kind of uh, I don't know how you would put it. She wouldn't really say how to pay for Medicare for all. And he called that quote enormously frustrating. Senator Warren, but it's enormously frustrating uh, not to have her um, uh, to have her not you know be I more right. valid. So he, reality. he said that he found that Joe Biden's support was really soft and his campaign was constricting and not expanding. I have always felt that his support was soft and it feels like his campaign is 
contracting rather than uh, rather than expanding. And so when I was listening to those comments in the moment, I mean, I just read them as his read on the field. But now watching them back, it's different when you read them as his read on the field as he's looking at getting it himself. That's such a good point. Wow. That, I mean, that's that's really and of course, his, his relationship with as a CBS contributor has been terminated as of as of this morning uh, when he announced his campaign, it looks like. Um, but the uh, w- one other thing that I'm interested in, Stephanie, I'm curious what you your read on this and 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 what you found in your reporting on Patrick, how much of this was prompted by, um, I guess, what you would call like external angst? Were people coming to Patrick and saying, you need to get in to, to save us from Elizabeth Warren or from Joe Biden or whoever they, they were concerned about? In the, or, or is this something that he arrived at internally? Because and, and certainly I think you could say the same thing with Bloomberg. Uh, th- there's a lot of talk about what the, the the Democratic donor class, quote unquote, is or isn't looking for, and where they're going in, in all this. And and I just wonder to the extent how much how much of it is, is this kind of elite concern filtering toward these people and pushing them in, and how much of it is um, maybe more primarily driven by the ambition of these prominent Democratic politicians who have always wanted to be president. Uh, but but maybe maybe found different parts about the path too overwhelming at, at different times. I think it's a little bit of both. Um, there's certainly, and what our reporting shows is that there's certainly excitement and urging among the donor class that he should do this. I think people are really freaked out by Elizabeth Warren uh, and her wealth tax and Medicare for all. Um, but at the same time, Deval Patrick is a really thoughtful politician and he wouldn't, at least from what I know of him and what people close to him have told me, he wouldn't get into a race where he doesn't see a real path. So I think that, and what he said on CBS this morning was that he feels like this is his moment and this is the time for him. Uh, So I think it's both and I'm not sure and I'm not even sure it will pan out for him. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it's a, uh, High risk, high reward proposition getting in at this time. It's going to be interesting to see whether he can make a splash. It's going to be interesting to see how he handles the the fact that you know he was at at uh, Bain Capital and has has worked in big business throughout his career. Uh, besides his public service, of course, uh, it's going to be very very interesting. Um, and we're going to get to see it play out a little bit earlier than we're going to see the Bloomberg stuff play out because Bloomberg has basically said he's lying in wait. Um, so, Stephanie, we're going to be re- reading and waiting for all of your stories with bated breath uh, over the next few weeks to just see see what happens with this. It's going to be very interesting. It's like uh, somebody compared it to me, um, to Rob Gronkowski on the Patriots sitting out and then Bob Kraft trying to trying to get him in for the playoffs at the very last minute. So there's your very, very Boston. (laughs) Very Boston metaphor. Very Boston metaphor. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk us through it and share that with us. Great to be here. Thank you. And as always, a big thank you to our listeners for tuning in this week. Our producers on this episode are Annie Reese, Jenny Ahmed, and Carlos Prieto. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Once again, thank you for tuning in. We'll talk again next week.